Father, we pray as we open your word now that you would cause your word to go forth, not in word only, but in power and in the spirit and with full conviction. And we pray that you would save and strengthen, edify, and do whatever would be pleasing to you in each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please open your Bibles to Acts 28, the final chapter of the book. Today's passage is the final leg of a long journey that we have been a part of for months. Ever since the middle of Acts 19, the Apostle Paul has aimed for the city of Rome. The Spirit called him to go there. The Lord Jesus promised he would make it there to testify to the gospel. And since we have known for a while that this is God's purpose for Paul to go to Rome, that's given us a special opportunity to consider God's providence in the last few chapters of Acts, because there have been many things that have happened between now and then that have seemed to threaten this promise of God actually coming to pass. Remember, after we learned Christ's purpose was for Paul to get to Rome and witness there, an angry mob tried to beat him to death. He was put in prison for over two years because unjust judges refused to release him. Two assassination plots were attempted against him during that time. And then eventually, he was able to make an appeal to have his court case transferred to Rome. Arrangements were made to send him there. Finally, he's going to the place God has promised, though it's not exactly as he had long imagined and hoped. He's going as a prisoner still. Even so, he's going, but, but then on his journey on, across the Mediterranean Sea to Rome, a violent storm completely destroys the ship that they are riding, but by God's grace and power, all the passengers are saved. They crash, they wash up on the shore of an island in the Mediterranean. But, but remember, then the soldiers of the ship decided they needed to kill all of the prisoners, Paul included. His life hangs in the balance again. But uh, the soldier's boss intervened. You see, again and again and again and again and again, against all odds, we see the Lord's purpose stands. That is because of God's all-pervasive providence. What could give a Christian more comfort and courage than this doctrine? Really, I mean, what is your struggle Why is your soul downcast? What troubles you? Go deeper in your understanding of God's providence. Sink the roots of your faith down deeper into the truth of God's providence. And see how God strengthens your heart. His providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby He upholds and governs. Heaven and earth and all creatures and all creatures are so completely in his hand that apart from his will, they cannot so much as move. All events must and do fall out according to the counsel of his will. They must. They must. His providence is infallible. 
acts as illustrated and Scripture teach directly. Infallible, unfailing. And yet, and yet, like the Apostle Paul in these chapters of Acts, we often cannot fully see or understand God's purposes for certain events. That's why we also talk about the mystery of God's providence. Because things happen all the time that seem to oppose our good and oppose God's purposes. But the Bible teaches us to trust that they are actually accomplishing both. Everything that seemed it might block Paul from Rome has ended up propelling him towards it. And this final leg of Paul's long journey gives us one more opportunity to consider these glorious truths. So the first main point for you to take away from today's scripture is the mystery and infallibility of God's providence. Look at verse 1, Acts 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. All right, now we know where the violent storm drove the helpless ship, Malta. If you have a map of the Mediterranean Sea in your head, most of you don't, or in your Bible, then, then you may realize already that this detail is rather surprising. Good news. Where is Malta? It is just to the south of Italy, the land of Rome. Malta was actually on the normal route to Rome for the ship that they were on. So the storm that hammered the ship and drove them off the coast of Crete, uh, 2714, said it was a northeaster. And, and so the way that those winds typically blew was towards what the sailors feared last chapter, into the sandy banks off the coast of North Africa that was the graveyard of a lot of ships and sailors in those days. But, but this typhoon-like wind inexplicably blew them instead due west and a little bit north. Strangely, wonderfully, the storm blew the ship back on track and actually accelerated their progress to Rome. Unbelievable. Now remember why they ended up in this life-threatening storm that, in a sense, turbocharged their progress. How did, how did they get caught in it? Well, from a human perspective, it was because of the foolishness of the captains who tried to get just a little farther towards Rome before docking the ship in the winter. They tried to steal a little more time before the sailing season ended, and it became dangerous. And this risky attempt to get a little farther, it almost cost them their lives. And it should have cost them a lot of time and progress. But in the mystery of God's providence, He turned even this folly for this good. They found themselves transported to Malta, where they would spend the winter not far from Rome. God bends everything towards the good of his people and the fulfillment of his purposes. Even the folly of men, the evil of men, and that includes even our own. 
But, but God does that in such a way that His overruling hand of blessing never leads us to desire more sin or foolishness, not, not for those who have a heart that He's made new by His Spirit and in Christ. What good news. God's good providence illustrated again. Just remember, Paul washed ashore on Malta of all places. And with that in your mind, never start to think, now I've done it. Now I've blown it. I'm done. Now I must forfeit all hope of any good because of of this thing I've done. And what the sailors did was foolish. It was so foolish. And they did, in a sense, reap what they sowed, didn't they? Uh, uh, Weeks of terror. They were driven to the point where all hope was abandoned. They suffered a total loss of the ship and the cargo. But God's good providence prevailed. And so on the other side of of their suffering that their foolishness led them into, they actually were farther along for having gone through it. It was the mystery of God's providence. When they washed ashore Malta, they were in a miraculously good spot. If you looked at them from the perspective of a dotted line on a map, if you were standing there on the shore looking at them, you would not say, they're, they're in great shape. They had just washed ashore from the sea in winter. It's cold. The next verse says it's raining. They've had to toss over all their cargo. They have no food. They have nothing with which to defend themselves. Look at what happened in verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. It's amazing. The native people saw them wash in on the waves, lying in the cold rain, shivering in the cold air, and they built a bonfire on the beach big enough to warm all 276 other survivors. This was unusual kindness, verse 2 said, to welcome uh, people like this. This was extraordinary mercy. God turned the winds toward Malta, and then He turned the hearts of the locals towards Paul's crew. God, God shows mercy to the works of His hands, to His people, even through the philanthropy of unbelievers. The Greek word in this verse is where we get the word philanthropy from, translated kindness. So here's more stunning evidence of the goodness of God's providence. On on the other side of that storm that had seemed to be just menacing evidence of divine disapproval. Goodness, kindness, provision from God. And then just as we're starting to get all the good feels about how everything is going better than we could have imagined. We read in verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. I I thought about this verse, Matthew, when we've talked about you cleaning pools and the the, the snakes that might be in there. This is unbelievable, right? This, This poor guy, 
out of the frying pan into the fire, right? He, he survived a shipwreck just to be bitten by a viper on the shore. And he's trying to help, isn't he? He's trying not just to, to be served, but to serve and go pick up some sticks and help keep the fire going. And this is what he gets for it? One of those sticks he picked up wasn't a stick. Uh, apparently, when the weather gets cold, snakes become inactive. Something like hibernation, the internet tells me. Uh, winter had come, and, and so this viper was cold, lying uh, stick-like still in this pile that he picks up. But when he gets close enough to the fire to toss the snake onto it, the snake's body temperature rises, wakes up, and it strikes. After all Paul has been through, the last few days and months and years... This is unbelievable. And sometimes we say that. During life in a fallen world, we think, oh no, something else? Already? More trouble? And of all things, this, something so random? Something so unlikely? This happens to how few people? It's happening to me? Or my friend? You know, some of the people who had traveled with Paul may have been tempted to rethink some of the conclusions that they had started to come to about God. They had heard Paul say God would deliver them safely through the storm, and that happened. They survived inexplicably. They ended up in Malta inexplicably. The natives show them over-the-top kindness inexplicably. Wow, maybe Paul's God is in control of all this. Oh, wait. Maybe not. Look, look at the viper hanging off of his hand. That makes no sense. Maybe, maybe we just had a string of a lot of good luck, which finally ran out. Oh, friends, don't be tempted to draw that same wrong conclusion as you consider your own life or others, as if, as if it's only when we see good come that God must be in control and can be trusted and is good. Like, like the book of Job says, shall we, not, shall we take the good from him and then doubt him when evil comes, suffering comes? In the mystery of God's providence, there are sometimes unexplainable, seemingly random, really significant trials that follow right on the heels of really incredible deliverances. Now, what do you do? What do you do? Well, you humble yourself before God. You pray earnestly for deliverance. And at the same time, you patiently trust our Father, the God of providence. Trust you will see the good God designed one day in this. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe not until heaven. If you're tempted to question God's goodness, let me tell you where to look. Look again at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're tempted to question God's capability of bringing some good from some evil, let me tell you where to look. Look again at the cross 
of Jesus Christ. Is the good news of the cross where the Son of God died for our sins. That's, that is the cornerstone around which we can build confidence in God's good providence over all things. Don't pursue that confidence without that cornerstone. It won't work. Verse 4 shows us another way we can misinterpret God's providence. Look at verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So the islanders saw, saw the serpent hanging from his hand, and they thought, yikes, that guy must have done something really, really bad to have something really, really bad like this happen to him. He's, he's probably a murderer or something. No, doubtless he is a murderer, they said. The goddess justice must be giving him what he deserves. One of the Greek idols. Well, let me, let me exhort you this way. Don't interpret providence like pagans. Or like the miserable counselors of Job. You know, Job, all this calamity has come upon you because of your personal sin. It has to be. Don't do it like the disciples when they looked at a man blind from birth and they asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither. They, they were on the wrong spectrum totally in thinking about this suffering. Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. On another occasion, Jesus challenged the same false assumption. He said, those 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Was their personal sin the reason the tower fell on those 18 in particular? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's a good way to respond to calamity. Uh, who did Paul murder to call, cause divine justice to send the viper? No one. Bad question. Wrong spectrum. All right, well, then why did God ordain for this to happen? Well, who can answer that? No one can answer questions like that, especially in the moment of the trial. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who, who can give counsel to the Lord? The book of Job. What was Job's sin for all of that evil to befall him? Wrong question. None. Then why did God do all that? Well, what, how did God answer? He, he, he answered by asking Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? No. Then shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? 
Then adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Then question me and and charge me with wrong and say that I haven't sinned in a way that deserved that. That's, That's just such a wrong way of thinking about God's providence in this fallen world. Job responded, thoroughly humbled, and he said, God, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, I acknowledge your greatness and your providence. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. See, in this short life, in this fallen world, in the mystery of God's providence, there is just not a simple one-to-one correlation between personal suffering and personal sin. There's a connection between suffering in the world, which affects us, and sin, the sin of humanity, which we have participated in, in the fall of Adam, our federal head. But not between every instance of personal suffering and personal sin. That, that, that's not true. That There's that one-to-one connection. That's not the Bible. That, that is a pagan conception of providence. That is godless, superstitious karma. It's hopeless Hinduism. And and if if you interpret God's providence like that, you're going to end up believing many wrong things about God. And you'll sin against Him through anger and complaining and worse if you have this wrong perspective on providence. Now, It is good to ask God uh, to show you in the midst of some suffering if there's anything that He may want you to repent of. If perhaps there is some kind of fatherly correction that He intends as part of a certain trial or or pain. But but in your own self-examination, and especially in your ministry to others, don't rush to the shallow error of these islanders in Acts 28. The Bible is full of examples and prayers and propositional truths that teach us that sometimes, for reasons we don't completely understand, especially in the moment of the pain, that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Have you read the Psalms? But the Bible also teaches us that it's not going to end this way. It won't be this way forever. Perfect justice will be meted out by God in eternity, but not before. Wait. Wait. Wait on Him. Trust in His perfectly good and wise providence in the meantime. Yes, even in the meantime. These islanders, they had another wrong idea of providence in that the divine providence... Their version of it was trying to kill Paul in the storm, but he escaped. And so the viper came. Well, no one ever actually escapes or outwits, really, God's providence. And and so it's not just the case that God is going to get his way in the end. But God is getting his way all along the way, too. His, His providence selects the destination and every step to it. And there are some things that we just can't understand. So we trust in the infallibility of His providence, even as we humbly accept the mystery of His providence. Look at verse 5 now. See what happened to Paul. 
he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Well, at at least not right away. The people still fully expected him to swell up or drop dead any minute now. See that in verse 6. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, He is a God! Well, here's another uh, misreading of providence that the Bible will not admit. Don't interpret providence like a pagan. If you're going to see a direct one-to-one correlation of personal sin and personal suffering, you might as well believe that people who miraculously beat the odds are divine. It's part of the same unbiblical worldview, as if we are at, at the center of the universe, and so everything that happens to us must be for reasons that are all about us. Uh, there's more in this passage to teach us about the mystery and infallibility of God's providence. But, but we need here to introduce the other main point of the passage. Here it is. The other main point today. The people who welcome and further God's mission. The people who welcome and further God's mission. And the passage is going to give us two groups of people who do that. Later, we're going to see in Italy, uh, the people who welcome and further God's kingdom are the people who are already in it. Fellow Christians, embracing fellow Christians and and sending them along for the furtherance of the kingdom. But first in our passage, we see in the mystery of God's providence that sometimes the people who welcome and further the kingdom are the people who seem farthest from it. A witness, again, these natives of Malta. We're supposed to read verse 6. They changed their mind and said Paul was a god. And, And we're supposed to giggle. We're supposed to think, that's ridiculous. How, how confused are these people? How far from the truth about God are they? You know, that, that, to read this, my, my four-year-old, right? She would go, no. And this is not the first time we've seen in Acts that clueless Gentiles have wrongfully assumed Paul was a god. Do you remember in Acts 14? They said, the gods have, have come to us in the likeness of men. And Paul could barely stop them from bringing ox to sacrifice to him. And then just moments later, Jews came from a neighboring town and convinced the crowd to stone him. Such radical, unprincipled change in their views about Paul. What, What does it show? It shows how lost these people are. How far from the knowledge of God they are. What deep darkness they were in with respect to their relation to God. What these Gentiles believed in the book of Acts, they were confused to the max. Right? They, they, they seemed to be the most lost of the lost. And, and heightening that sense, uh, what the ESV translates as native people in verse 2 and verse 4, if you're reading an older translation like uh, the King James, it, 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 it says barbarians. And actually, the Greek word there is barbaroi, bar- barbarians. And that's the word that the Greeks and Romans used to refer to other peoples who did not speak Greek. You know, uncivilized people whose language just sound like, sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. 
barbaric, barbaric, barbarians, uncultured, uncivilized peoples. But these barbarians who believed Paul was a murderer one minute and a god the next, what are they doing in this passage? They are showing unusual kindness to him and welcoming Paul and all who traveled with him. And then verse 7 continues that same picture. Look at verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. How how has Paul been treated through the book of Acts? Not like this. This kindness and hospitality stands in stark contrast to the way that he's been rejected by many cultured people and, and many people who knew and believed a lot of true things about God. They rejected his mission and his gospel so strongly, and these barbarians opened their arms to him. And, and in the house of this leading man of Malta, the Lord enables Paul to, to miraculously return kindness to his host. Look at verse 8. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. It was a miracle. Word got around on the little island quickly that this had happened. So verse 9, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Now we've seen this kind of thing happen before in Acts. Many extraordinary miracles were done by the apostles of Jesus. Big miracles. And and at times, big bundles of miracles like this, which resemble very closely the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels. And what's happening is by these Christ-like, extraordinary miracles. They're called extraordinary in in the uh, earlier in Acts. They're uncommon, even as far as miracles go, the things, the signs the apostles did. Jesus is authenticating his his apostles as uh, his authoritative spokesmen and representatives. The eyewitnesses of his resurrection. These were the men that Jesus was, was putting his public seal on that the gospel they preached was the word of God. The gospel they preached and wrote down in our New Testament. Now, uh, like I said, we've, we've seen apostles do miracles like this before in Acts. But it's not many times, right? And we know that they actually did more miracles than the book of Acts records. For example, Paul wrote in his letter to the churches in Corinth that he did the signs of a true apostle among them. Signs and wonders. Miracles were part of his ministry in Corinth, but in Acts 18, about his ministry in Corinth, we don't read anything about any miracles. So we need to ask, not just why did these things happen in Malta, but why did Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, include them in the book at this point? Why write about them here? Again, what's happening in this part of Acts? Paul's going to Rome. What's going to happen to him there? Well, sneak peek, 
Uh, the only thing we're going to read about is an encounter he has with the Jewish religious leaders in Rome. He proclaims Christ to them from the Scriptures, but, but most of them won't hear it. So look down at verse 25 near the end of the book. And disagreeing, Acts 28, 25, disagreeing amongst themselves, they, the Jewish religious leaders, departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Same Greek word used up in the account about Malta. So Paul agreed with Isaiah and the Holy Spirit who spoke through both that the Jews who were rejecting the gospel were like their ancestors who rejected the prophets, that they had ears that were deaf to God's truth, they had eyes that were blind to God's glory, they couldn't see or hear specifically to turn to God in truth and to turn to His King and His Savior, Jesus. They would not understand with their heart and, and turn and have God heal them this spiritual blindness and deafness and dullness. Well, that, that indictment is spoken against them right after we read that the Lord healed a bunch of barbarian islanders who were totally in the dark about the God of the Bible. So you see, I think we hear about these healings in Malta in the beginning of chapter 28, at least in part to make the indictment that we read at the end of chapter 28 have a little more sting to it. It's not just that they won't turn and be healed. It's that these barbarians will. The people who were farthest from the truth and kingdom of God were, in the mystery of God's providence, the people who welcomed and benefited from Paul's ministry. Not, not the Bible-believing people who walked out on him, or rather, we should say, those who thought themselves to be Bible-believing people. Those who seemed like they would be the most likely candidates to receive the gospel, they would not turn and be healed while the barbarians received much healing. Don't count out those who seem far off. God's arm is not too short to reach them to save them. Share the word with those who seem far off. And, on the other hand, don't be too surprised if some who seem like shoe-ins to the kingdom reject Christ. Because salvation is wholly of grace. And, and it demands repentance. And some who consider themselves good Bible folk, like the Jewish religious leaders in Rome did, 
they don't see how they desperately need both repentance and grace. And so they do not turn. The men of Malta welcomed Paul. And, and we can be sure that, that all of these miracles were accompanied by much gospel proclamation. That's the pattern we have in Acts. And we don't read how they responded to, to the gospel, but I would guess that some of them did respond in faith and were saved, at least some of them, because they're willing to host Paul and his companions with great kindness for three more months, verse 11 tells us. And Paul is not one to mince words about the futility of Gentile idolatry and about the judgment and about the need for Christ as the only way to the only God. And they were happy to keep a guy like that around for months to help him. So at the very least we can say, those who did not come to faith became friends of Paul's gospel ministry somehow, even, even in a way that the Jewish religious leaders refused to. And, and verse 10 says, they provided all that was needed for this ministry to continue, this journey to Rome to carry on. Look at verse 10. They honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Incredible generosity alongside unusual kindness and hospitality. And it's so sweet to think about how Paul left this island in comparison to how he arrived, isn't it? He washed up on shore with nada. Nothing. And he sailed away with, the verse says, whatever we needed and greatly honored. And it's no wonder that when Paul gets to Rome and he's in prison and he writes a letter to the church in Philippi, he can say, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Learn what Paul learned in part by look, look at Malta. E even people who are ignorant of God are still subject to the providence of him who promised to be your provider. Now finally in verse 11, the winter passed and they were able to set sail. Look at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Yeah, those are the supposed Sons of Zeus, they were the patron gods of navigation, and so the favored idols of uh, Gentile sailors in those days. But here again, I, I think we have a striking picture of, of the mission of God being carried forward by those who seem very far from a true knowledge of Him. It, the light of the gospel is traveling to Italy on a ship with idols carved out front. A again, the Gentiles who were in the dark further the ministry of the gospel, help, helping Paul along with whether or not that was part of their intention. This is something that God was accomplishing. See what God is able to do. See in his power and his mercy. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe there are people that you know or that you know of 
about whom you think there is no way this person would welcome the word of God. No way this person would be used to further the kingdom of God. And I want to invite you, in light of Acts 28, to give up that way of thinking. Remember one time Jesus went into the temple, into the temple, the place where it would seem those who were seeking God the most would gather. And he spoke to the religious leaders, the chief priests, the elders of the people, the the people who seemed to be at the head of the line for nearness to the kingdom. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into heaven before you. The person who is most confused about God in this room, the, the, the person you know who is most in the dark about God, the the person who has sinned most grievously in this room, the person in this room who has never pursued righteousness a day in their life can become righteous in God's sight today, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, forever. By believing upon Christ, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. After paying for our sins, to to declare that he was righteous. And all who believe on him who died and was raised, have his, his declaration that he is righteous is credited to them. So they are righteous in God's sight on account of what he did in union with him. And in that way, those who are far from God are brought near all the way by the blood of Christ. Well, let's move this to a close. Verses 12 and 13 give the details on the short trip from Malta to the Italian mainland. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Butioli. And and at this place, Paul and his friends and his fellow prisoners and the soldiers responsible for transferring him to Rome, they all get off the ship, and the rest of the way to Rome will be by foot. They spend a week in this place, And then they set off, verse 14 says, There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. We made it. Rome at last. God's purposes are infallible. You must learn not to ever misread God's providence in the middle of its mystery in a way that causes you to question the infallibility of his purposes, his, his promises. Remember this little line at, at the end of this verse, and so we came to Rome. God's word is good. God's word proves true. It happened. 
Now, we might think the next verse, verse 15, would start a new scene with Paul in Rome, but actually it doesn't. The Spirit inspires Luke to backtrack a bit, give a few more details about this last part of the final leg to Rome. Look at verse 15. And the brothers there in Rome, the brothers, when they heard about us, they came out of Rome as far as the forum of Appius, 40 miles from Rome, and three taverns, 30 miles from Rome, to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Okay, so verse 14 said that when they stepped off the ship in that town, Paul found brothers and they welcomed him. He was allowed to stay with them seven days. And then when he set off from them toward Rome, some brothers from Rome had had heard that he was close and they didn't wait to welcome him in the city. They left to meet him and accompany him on the way. They joined this caravan of prisoners to accompany Paul. It's a beautiful picture. Paul flanked by lots of brothers who came a long way to walk with him to their home. And it's no wonder then he did the end of verse 15. He he thanked God when he saw them. And when he saw them, he took courage. What Matt read earlier in the service, Paul wrote three years earlier to the Christians in Rome. He had never met them. And he said, I pray always asking that somehow by God's will I may at last succeed in coming to you. I long to see you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I have often intended to come to you. I hope to to see you as I go to Spain and be helped by you on my journey there. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while, I appeal to you, brothers, strive together with me In your prayers to God that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. Paul had been praying for a long time to get to see and enjoy being with these brothers. And he's walking to Rome and he sees them come walking to him. What what an emotional, beautiful... I mean, if Paul was like me, you know, he, he would have cried when he saw these people coming walking the other way on the road and realized who they were. The brothers that I've prayed to see are coming to welcome me and walk with me, even though here I am in chains. The welcome of fellow Christians, the affection of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that is one of the best gifts of God's providence for his people. When when you welcome one another, when you go out of your way, even many miles out of your way, to welcome one another and show affection for one another and just to be with one another. You know what that promotes? What, what it promoted in Paul, thanksgiving to God and encouragement. He took courage. If you want God to use you to build his church, I would exhort you to, to be like Paul, in the sense that you, you minister the word to those around you who seem farthest from the kingdom. Let God surprise you with the greatness of his mercy and be like these brothers from Rome. Go out of your way to meet other brothers and sisters 
just to be with them and encourage them in the Lord. Don't, don't wait for fellowship to come to you. Don't wait for evangelism to fall in your lap. Take courage. Trust in God's providence. Watch what God will do. God, I pray that you would uh, make us all like that. I thank you for the honor of being used by you and the privilege to get to be involved in building your church. God, thank you for this passage and the way that it convinces us that your promises are good as gold. Paul did make it to Rome. pray you would remind us of these things often. And, and I pray that you really would change the way that we relate to you and walk with you uh, because of the time that we've spent with Paul on this journey to Rome. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.